Have you ever wondered what it's like to scale a unicorn? How about twice? How about twice in two different markets, both of them outside of the bay? And now how about doing that from near the ground level and building it all the way up to a thousand plus? That is an interesting challenge for a people executive. And in this episode, we are going to cover all of that with my good friend and former VP of people for both Hootsuite and Duo Security, Ambrosia Vertesi. We're going to have some great takeaways for people executives on things you need to be thinking about early on to build your team in a way that is ready to scale with the organization. So we'll get more into that in just a moment, right after a quick message from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called The Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. You know, when I launched this podcast, I knew that I would be talking to some new leaders who I've admired their work, and I'll be talking to some friends who I've been following, and and in some cases where I'm really fortunate, involved in their work, and uh, and occasionally I'll get to marry those things together, and that's definitely the case in today's episode. I'm joined by a great friend of mine, a fellow collaborator on a variety of projects, uh, but more importantly, uh, an exceptionally talented uh, modern people executive. And this is my good friend, Ambrosia Vertesi. So Ambrosia, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So Ambrosia, you have a really unique background. And for the listeners that uh, are not familiar with you, you've um, had the distinct pleasure of actually building HR from the ground up at not one, but two unicorn companies with both Hootsuite and Duo Security, which was recently acquired by Cisco. And, you know, I'm, I'm very curious, uh, obviously, when you're taking a startup, particularly in tech from the ground up and scaling it, what are some of the differences from a, a, a people perspective, an HR perspective, a, a kind of process perspective from growing a company from you know the 50 to 250 range to the 500 to 1,000 plus range? What are some of the kind of unique challenges that a people executive has to be prepared to overcome in, in those two kind of distinct stages of growth? Yeah, I think from my lens, I always think it's really important to contextualize for people the, the world at which you see things. Um, working in SaaS, software as a service, um, organizations that are both kind of working towards the enterprise level of that, I think, frames the life cycle of and what the inflection points of those growth or potential growth pain points will be at different times. And so generally and broadly speaking, I think a, a 
from a people side of the organization, uh, learning what your business perceives the customer challenges to be over the next few years and trying to stay as close as possible to the go-to-market will help you anticipate what your people growth needs are. Um, an example would be, you know, maybe if you're in consumer goods or in something else, those aren't the same points at which you hit uh, a growth milestone, but in SaaS, those definitely are. I think the 50 to 250 is an interesting one. As an HR leader, you come in usually, you know, maybe later at, at Hootsuite, I started in when there were 20 people and grew them to 1200. At Duo, I started at 100 and we grew to 800. Those were two very different environments to come into. Um, Hootsuite being a little bit earlier, I could get my hands on some foundational building and could anticipate the milestones. Duo was already hitting a growth spurt. Um, I think when I came in, they were 100 going to 300 that year. So we were, I was coming into a need already. So I think learning the, what's going on with the business for as far out as you can see, and I know the smaller the company, the hardest, harder it is to see the horizon, but anticipating what the customer is going to experience will help you prioritize what the, the key differences are going to be in your growth trajectory because you are responding to the business. Um, and so when you're 50 to 250, you might be coming into an environment where there's absolutely no foundation. There's no team. You're building your team. Uh, the people practices really show up as more cultural rituals than standard operating procedures, or maybe there's not software involved. So if you're there, I recommend people to build a roadmap, um, for the rest of the organization to see where you're going to take HR from 50 to 500. And the reason why I think that is different is that everyone who's going to go on that journey with you from 50 to 250 to 500 needs to know what's coming next to feel a level of certainty. Mm. If they can't attach to what you're building on the HR side, meanwhile, on the other side, you're building your team. Maybe, you know, when I joined Duo, we had a few recruiters and, and one personal reporting to the CEO. Uh, we had to really kind of get to where the, the business was at at an operating level before we could get ahead of them. And they needed to know that, right? that we were going to be spending our focus on hiring because we had huge hiring growth goals, but that their employee experience, if we don't explain to them what's coming when, is going to be all they care about is hiring. They don't care about retention. Um, and a number of your resources are going to go to hiring your team and hiring for the business. So I think that that key difference in that early stage is communication about what you're going to be building and then bringing people along with you to share with them, you know, when things like merit reviews or performance reviews or leadership development are going to be coming in place so that they're just not looking externally and going, why don't we have this yet? Um, and so if you can do that, I think culturally you're going to buy yourself a lot of time but when you get past 500 to 1,000, people will be able to know what to expect from you because you're going to have to build another roadmap um, that's going to be a bit different and it's going to be a bit more formalization. So from 500 to 1,000, you need to have a lot more structure and strategy around process, um, around compliance that can show up in, depending on how complicated your organization is, can show up as bureaucracy. People might not like that, but it has to be done. Um, and then the third one is around technology. Uh, the needs of your organization to automate, to 
manage compliance on an HRIS, all of those kinds of things just starts becoming a lot more obvious to the employee. And from their experience, while you're trying to build repeatable standard practices, automation, making things a little bit simpler for your scale, it might show up to them as, I used to just be able to send somebody an email and now I have to do all this stuff. Um, And so I think if culturally nothing changes, tell people what you're doing and then make sure you do it or tell them why you're not. But the focus of what you're doing in those two frameworks are very different. So the first one being actually tell them where you're coming in, what you need, and really that the focus is going to be on hiring. You got to be honest about that. People are going to see it. They're going to feel it. Then if you share with them, the focus is actually going to be on process and technology and building programs after that so that we can make things easy for you, repeatable, and uh, and have you anticipate and know how to do things so you can move quickly. That change for employees happens at 500. Things start getting hard. So your focus changes a little bit, but sometimes I see leaders fall into the trap of not sharing that that's going to be the focus. Um, and then they just end up uh, having to justify why things are getting more, I guess, uh, regulated, I guess would be the way that the employees. <laughs> right. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, this isn't the way we always used to do things. Why is this more difficult now? Why does this take longer? I think that the, uh, you know, process without definition kills you, right? When you are not able to set expectations and kind of marry that with the why that, uh, that you're doing that particularly as you're getting ready to scale. Uh, I think you, that's where a lot of people miss is that they, you know, you, you nailed it. They don't, they don't marry the communication about the why uh, along with the process. And when you kind of staying on that path a little bit for you, like what are some of the foundational elements to building a, a people strategy that's, that's actually built to scale, right? You're, you're, you're looking down the road at, at where you see the organization in a year, two years, you know, or more. What are some of the kind of foundational people process um elements that most leaders tend to overlook uh, and, and comes back to bite them when they, they find themselves at 500 and growing? Yeah, I think people strategy, particularly in hypergrowth, um, I, you know, I started with communication talking about the difference between those two different areas, and, and I'll maintain that. Um, a lot of organizations don't invest in internal comms. They invest in Slack. They invest in tools yeah. for internal comms, but they don't invest in uh, a communication really value proposition and then some practices around that. And how that shows up for leaders is their communication style starts dictating really operationally inefficient things or the employee experience across their team and the business starts being disjointed. So maybe some leaders are like, text me if it's important. Maybe some leaders don't respond to Slack. Maybe some leaders live by Slack. Um, whatever their experience is, um, communication is always the place where you start seeing companies have to go back and rework, okay, well, how are we going to do, should we build a wiki? Should we do this? Should we do that? I always see a lot of over-engineering happening later on to rectify the fact that uh, the company doesn't have just a simple, elegant solution for how do we share information across horizontally across our business and then vertically down. 
Um, it becomes very stylistic to the leader. And if that leader leaves, it's quite disruptive to the business. Um, and so that would be the first one that I would say leaders really need to think as an executive function. Um, I've owned internal comms sometimes. Uh, marketing's owned internal comms. Just put it wherever it's the most effective for your business. Uh, some people don't like when HR owns internal comms because they think that they're spinning the message, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, which... I don't obviously agree with that's my bias because HR will look at the comms before they go out no matter who owns it. Um, but wherever the, the employees feel and the CEO and the executive team feel the most connected comms number one. Second, I think um, focusing on leadership bench. Now everybody says this, we need to think about our leadership bench. When I was at duo every month, spent two hours with the CEO talking about the executive team. Um, we had a three-year roadmap to the kinds of roles and competencies that we were going to need on the executive team, not necessarily the people and their performance and if they were going to get there, but we had a very, um, very light idea of what we were working towards and that allowed us to have honest conversations with leaders over the course of years. It allowed us to anticipate need, um, what training was needed for those specific individuals. In both companies, we had to bring on new executive teams because, you know, the growth and, and rate of growth of those organizations in two or three years, um, you know, you needed to bring on a CFO who was ready for IPO readiness. And our existing CFO didn't, you know, raised his hand and was very public about the fact that that wasn't the career path he was wanting. But we knew that and we had time. Yeah, I think sometimes people have an organizational design in their head but they don't have the early and often conversations with their leaders or with their HR partners. And then they end up in a reactive state where six months out, they're telling somebody, Hey, I know you've been killing yourself for three years, but I'm going to have to hire over you. Um, that is a very dangerous <laughs> place to put the business. Um, and I think on the people strategy side, sometimes the HR leader is sitting there going, how come this is the first time I'm hearing this? This person's been in your high performer box for the past three years and all of a sudden you need someone new. We're in a reactive state. So early, often constant conversations about the next level of leaders, whether or not that's managers, directors, VPs, or SVPs. Um, and then the last one is just uh, business readiness. You can build an amazing people strategy and have the company not be ready to take it. Um, especially in early stage, if you put together a really good performance management strategy with great compensation reviews and everything, great workforce planning, and the business just doesn't have the resources to implement it effectively, uh, it's going to flop. And so you got to really think about where the business is at, how to meet them where they are. And let's, you know, you, you raised a great point with talent and uh, especially for leadership planning. I think one of the things that's quite interesting about your background is, you know, you, it's rare to uh, run, uh, it's rare to run HR for Unicorn. It's more rare to run HR from Unicorn where you've built it from the ground up or at least early stages, you know, up to that status. Uh, it's even more rare to do that outside of the Bay. And uh, you, you've had the, uh, the, the fortune and, and or unique challenge of doing that twice with you know, Hootsuite based in Vancouver uh, and Duo based uh, in Ann Arbor outside of Detroit. You know, what were some of the unique challenges of scaling and growing a unicorn outside of the Bay? 
Yeah. Well, I'm, I live in Vancouver, Canada, so that, that, uh, gave me a little bit of a competitive advantage. I'm not from Detroit. And so that was uh, a completely different set of circumstances where I had to learn the local ecosystem myself before I could, you know, go out and employer brand it in any way. Uh, And I think the decentralization away from the Bay is a trend we've been seeing for a while. When it comes to the people side and, and the talent strategy that is required to do that in tech, it really comes down to how are you going to operationalize your organization to accommodate for that? Um, you can't just pretend that there isn't a, a gravitational pull towards the bay. You have to acknowledge it. Uh, you have to think about and be considerate about what that means for you and your business. So at Hootsuite, we knew that we would always have a small presence down there. We would have a couple leaders down there, and we would have leaders who were going to as part of their role, travel down there frequently. And there was a there was a strategy around how to connect to the Bay, but it wasn't to hire a large team there. When um, Duo came through and started thinking about growth strategies, Michigan-based, huge, same, same local pride of wanting to do it where you are, uh, there was a lot of engineering talent, so we knew we were always going to focus engineering talent there and in, in a second location, which ended up being Austin. Um, the Bay would be focused on a lot of go-to-market because we felt that that was an area that was super important for us to stay connected uh, and that board meetings would be there. We would have uh, an opportunity to bring people together strategically at certain times. Uh those are really important things that people miss. They just assume, you know, okay, we're going to have to go there every once in a while. But having a strategy for how to interact with that market and what you want from it, um, and then how that shows up for your people and what you're going to ask of them is a really important competitive advantage for you to get the most out of that area. Um, travel's expensive. It tacks on a, a lot of time. It takes people away from their families. So just going out for conferences isn't going to be the best strategy, but going in and getting a 10x multiplier on the reason why you were there, um, I think is a really important one. The second one comes down to a marketing investment. Um, I think there's been a lot of, of progress away from this, but it used to be hard to get headline if you weren't a Bay Area company. And so thinking about what makes you unique as a business and also as an organization, will help you get the kind of recognition uh, you need for customer, for investing, in recruiting, whatever draw you want and need from the Bay Area will come from a, a very good sound marketing strategy for that. So at Duo, the nobody by the time I got to Duo, nobody was writing press articles about companies with great cultures anymore because everybody was saying that. Um, we had to have a different story and our differentiator was how we were building diversity and inclusion throughout our business from an early stage. And that happened to be um, a, a topical story. It was hot on the press at the time. And so we were able to hop on that bandwagon and then talk about the ability to use remote workers and returning parents and uh, veterans and different people um, as a way to help us pull people out of the Bay Area um, and maybe come to a, a remote work environment instead.
Interesting. You know, I think one of the things that uh, you did as well at Duo, which I thought was really smart, was uh, kind of homecoming recruiting. Uh, I, I remember you and the, the recruiting team were kind of consciously going out and looking for people in the Bay or, you know, New York or other kind of big markets that had Michigan roots and might be interested in coming home. I thought that was that was really smart and uh, and, and seemed successful. Yeah, we did that. Um, we, we did that at Hootsuite as well. The boomerang talent like yeah. how can we get people who were here and left and if we can't get them back because you know especially for more senior talent they lay down roots they might have been there for 15 years um, how do we appeal to the side of them that cares about that and perhaps is this an employee that can be remote and if it is are we open to that and how do we operationalize that so both companies had big recruiting strategies around that but also had a concerted amount of resource and effort between the GNA functions to make remote work for the business. And one thing I want to explore a little bit with you as well is you mentioned kind of in the early stage of startups, and I think this probably applies to just about all startups, you're heavily focused on recruiting uh, on the people team. Typically, your first couple of hires are going to be in recruiting uh, or at least have a, a large responsibility for recruiting. At what stage, I want to kind of get into how you start building the team beyond recruiting. So, you know, from, from your experience, when is the right time to, to start thinking more about recruiting ops as opposed to just pure full cycle recruiters and or sourcers? When's the right time to bring on a, a recruiting ops person? I would love a recruiting ops person on day one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the reason why is um, I if I could have two key hires in the early days in every business I go into on my team. One would be a people operations person that works on how do we create simple practices for our employees um, that so they know how to get things done um, and build infrastructure on the kind of HR side of the business. And the other would be recruiting ops because often if you don't have someone running the building the frameworks and, and building the machine uh, to put it simply, then you end up having practitioners trying to do it. Yeah. And when you have an HR business partner trying to build an HRIS system or something like that, it's it's not their domain. Uh, and it the business sees HR business partners that are supposed to be with them. But the reality is their HR leader drags them behind the curtain to do a bunch of buildings of programs. So it's kind of a loss-loss is you're not playing them to their strengths and the business isn't getting what they thought they were going to get, which is, are you my person? Um, and so I think with recruiters and HR business partners, they need that person who's thinking about, well, what interview frameworks are we going to put in place? What systems do we need in place? What policies do we need in place? Because I don't think that they can do both at the same time. Um, I, I haven't always gotten those hires because, you know, resources are always something you have to <laughs> have to struggle with. But if I could have my wish list, those would be in, in the top 10 hires on my team. Um, I think recruiting operations specifically owning technology is really helpful. Yeah. And helping the recruiters and the hiring managers with training. So having even just if you're really early in the game, having a quick little boot camp that anybody who's doing an interview has training um, so that you don't end up with a lot of 
you know, someone coming from Microsoft with a certain way of doing things and someone who's never been a manager before doing things. And that's the candidate experience is a person sitting in a room with them. Um, so anything that can help you behind the scenes build an excellent experience on the outside are always the investments if I ha- if I can make those that I will try to make first. Yeah. So essentially, if you're a uh, people leader out there and you're contemplating whether you need to hire a recruiting ops person, you probably already have needed that. So uh, <laughs> accelerate those plans and uh, and bring that person on. Uh, you know, another role that uh, particularly I think around Duo, you kind of mentioned how culturally and and differentiating uh, wise, you really leaned into building a very uh, diverse and inclusive environment. What is the right time to bring on a leader to help really kind of drive and own uh, diversity, equity, and belonging efforts within the organization? I think this goes down to my comment on business readiness. Um, I There are two different pieces of feedback you hear from employees sometimes about a diversity and inclusion pers- person coming in. One being on the side of, why do we need someone to sit in HR and do this? This should be everybody's job. Um, and is this the right hire for HR early stage? And then the second side saying, we absolutely need this person to make sure that it's integrated in all of our practices early. I am probably in the second camp. Uh, I don't think that it's a vertical function. I think it's a horizontal function that happens to report to HR where it can make the most people impact. Uh, but I also think it's really important to ensure that the business is ready for what that means. and. That means that every practice, uh, whether or not it's through from the CEO's practices um, and how they show up and present themselves and interact uh, with the world, down to how we do IT, down to how you know we build our remote pro- programs, that person's got their hands on it. And to make sure that you're thinking holistically and inclusively, um, that that's a lot of work. And it's it's a conversation that I think should be happening from the beginning. And they can be an asset in that. Now, the diversity person, I would hire the recruiting ops and the people ops people before I would hire a diversity person because if you don't have practices and processes, even foundationally, then they can't build anything. Um, and then they get stuck in, in qualitative um, D&I practice. Um, so for us, we brought it in at 300, which was very early uh, for what we were bringing in. But Duo had a commitment to this. This was one of our cultural competitive advantages was the operationalization of diversity and inclusion. Uh, And also that team owned corporate social responsibility and volunteering and giving, how we interacted with the community around us. So they had a huge scope and our employees really wanted to participate in the building of that. And that took ownership and someone to quarterback doing the employee enablement of that. We didn't have a big budget. But you can do a lot on a volunteer basis. (laughs) And our practices were so successful, even though it was an early stage build, that Cisco ended up uh, adopting uh, a lot that the the team had built and are plugging it in now into their 80,000 person organization. So I don't think it's at a certain people number. I think it's when the business is ready to do the actual work. Um, The other point I'll add on there that I think is of value is... uh, an HR leader will know this is you are in your success is intricately connected with the other GNA functions. Uh, does the legal team have the capacity to support you on this and all of the changes that will come with what that person wants to do? Um, 
do you have uh, data at all? Um, it's very difficult for a DNI person to be effective if they can't even get your demographics down. Um, I can't do any reporting in a, in a, in a factual way to the business. Um, for workforce planning, I think taking a look at who do we need, where do they need to be, the finance team, um, super important partner to doing any of the work that I've talked about. Uh, I would take a workforce planning partner or an FP&A partner. That would be, that's another dream hire. <laughs> Those are really, really important foundation builders to help you once you hit 500 employees. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective. And I think that the uh, we don't often talk about the interdependencies with other departments when we're talking about people and recruiting initiatives, right? And I think that that's definitely a miss because ultimately for them to be successful, they we have to be thinking about how the other groups are going to be positioned to support their work and and the ramifications of their work. And so that's that's definitely a key point that I think is really important to reinforce. Yeah, and to bring them in early and often to see if they're shared goals. Um, I've seen this, you know, across businesses a lot and people strategies and people leaders. I think they notice it outside of themselves, but some, sometimes they'll end up in that situation as well where they want to roll in an HRIS, um, but they don't own payroll. Finance does. And finance has a roadmap with completely other objectives. Payroll is in 2020. Uh, HR wants it in 2019. That's, that's a huge disconnect that happens all the time. Um, and then they end up you know, in an implementation path where they're trying to roll out an HRIS and tack on payroll a year later um, just to try and appease. So I think there's there's a lot of those conversations that need to happen between facilities, legal, and finance in particular about what the people's strategy is, what the business readiness is, and what their readiness is to contribute their resources when they have conflicting priorities. Interesting. No, I think that's key. And this is uh, this has been really helpful. I think listeners will this will have a lot of key takeaways in terms of just how they think about scale based on your experience. So I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. And I could I could as we have before, we could easily spend a couple hours on this podcast. But I will I will save listeners, uh, you know, that. But uh, what I do want to do is how what's the best way for listeners to connect with you after the show if they if they might want to follow up or just uh, be in touch in the future. Yeah, I think right now LinkedIn, just because I'm spending a lot of time on there on other projects, um, hit me up there. I'll message you back. Uh, that would be the best place. I'm, I'm taking a bit of a social siesta right now. So that's the spot. Social siesta. We've uh, Social siestas are very important and very necessary. <laughs> so when you, when you come back from your, uh, your little siesta... Uh, you may have some more LinkedIn invitations waiting for you, but uh, I, as always, I'm, I'm loving uh, catching up with you. Grateful for you sharing your wisdom on the show. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to nerd out on this. <laughs> All right, Ambrose. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.